Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening, everyone, and welcome to the first sprinklings of Summer is Coming. This is Our Common Ground, and we are so grateful that you have joined us tonight here at the Sanctuary to talk black on black. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are having a very special guest with us, His name is Torren Ellis. He's a human capital strategist, and we'll tell you about what that is, Uh, an interview architect and co-founder of Sea Future. He delivers engaging and high-spirited recruiting services. And most of our regular listeners will say, well, Janice, you're doing something very different than you usually do. Yes, because I know some things that you ought to know. And those things that start with how black people are striding in employment. We do a lot of talking about unemployment, but we kind of neglect the issue of employment. 
28.1% of all black Americans are employed in management, business, science, and arts occupations. 25.7 in service occupations and 25.9 in sales and office occupations. Then there is that 15% in production, transportation, and material moving occupations. And we don't give them much attention. And tonight, with Torin Ellis, we're going to talk about working while black. There are an awful lot of issues. Getting the job, keeping the job, moving up in the job, and keeping termination at bay. A lot of pieces go into our success in employment. And we are so pleased to be able to have him. For those of you who haven't found your seats, please find your seats. The lights are going out because we are being joined by Torin Ellis. Hey, Torin, how are you? You can put me in the good category. How are you? Uh, yeah, you're in the good category. You're on time. You're not doing that CPT thing. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what that is. I, I really don't. I don't know what that is. Well, as as I always say, if you're not on time, then you're not here. You're not present. But you know, I've tried to do um, make this distinction between uh, employment and being in the right place at the right time, being strategizing our lives around our employment. But before we go into to that and making those distinctions, tell us a little about you, how you got into the recruitment business, how the recruitment business works, and how we can use it. Well, first of all, Janice, I appreciate you allowing me to uh, be on with you and trust in my voice with your listeners. I absolutely appreciate that. Uh, how I got into recruitment was was by accident for much of us that are in the recruiting space. It's by accident. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, my, my beginning was uh, running sales teams at MCI Communications in the mid-90s. And I ran one of the top producing and most efficient sales teams in the entire country. As a matter of fact, when I left MCI in 1998, my sales team was ranked number 17 in the entire country. And so for me, it was just a matter of aligning with a very good friend of mine. Uh, He and I decided that if we could hire, he also worked for MCI. We decided that if we could hire individuals for MCI, if we could develop them, if we could motivate them, most importantly, if we could retain them, if we could do that for MCI Communications, then we could do that for a variety of companies. And so together, the both of us started a recruiting company in 1998. So for me, I'm approaching my 18th year of being in business. Wow. And so because recruiting the ones that started out, the pioneers in your business that started out in the late 60s and and were going strong in the 70s as a result of 1124 executive order 11246 they all went by the I used to know everybody in that business and they're all gone so you picked the torch up in 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 98 
Well, I picked it up, but the ebb and flow of this business is is not unlike any other business. And, and so I'm sure, Janice, for some of those that you knew that are gone, I say exactly the same thing. There were quite a few that joined and or were already in the business in 1998. But when that first uh, bubble burst in 2001, a good number of them uh, picked up their, their sandbox, if you will, or their bucket and their shovel, and they went back to corporate America, uh, my friend included. Uh, and he's mm-hmm. very successful right now. Uh, inside of his uh, corporate employer. And so when the bubble, I'm sorry, when the economic collapse happened in 2008, a horde of other uh, recruiters went back to corporate America and or doing something different. So the ebb and flow is not unlike any other business. It's just what it's part of. It's a part of what we do. And recruitment is not an easy thing, especially if you are a recruiter like I am. I focus on diversity recruitment. And so that's even more difficult because it, it, it forces me to have to go out and find candidates, find high-impact talent that organizations in many ways say that they, they struggle to find. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, a old corporate horse, <laughs> and um, I understand very well uh, I spent 12 years as the um, vice president of human resources in uh, a major corporation that was a runaway horse that failed. Uh, but we were spending probably around 2 to $3 million on search expenses, costs, uh, at the height of that business. Well, that was Wayne Laboratories. Mm-hmm. And you know that story, but <laughs> yep, very familiar. Yep, I would have loved to have been able to uh, do business with uh, your w- with a company like yours. I've, I've read a lot about the company um, over the last uh, couple of days, and you're doing really, really well. Well, I mean, you, you know, are well a success is- story. Well, definitely a success story. Well, is still being shaped and formed, but a success story for a number of reasons and reasons we won't necessarily bore your listeners with in terms of stats and being in business and mm-hmm. all of those other good things. But I would say most certainly a success story because the bottom line is I have worked extremely hard over the last two approaching three years to make sure that uh, when companies see me coming, they don't run the other way. I, I try to make sure that they understand that when I say the word diversity or the phrase diversity and inclusion, that it's not something that is arduous. It's not a task that's like rolling a snowball up the hill, that it's something that they are uh, um, they find an affinity in. Uh, and we have mm-hmm. a conversation where they, they understand that Torn is really here because he's trying to help us to move and advance our position in the industry that we're in, in the business that we're building, and ultimately that we can have an impact in the community. So definitely working extremely hard to make sure that when people hear me, when they see me, when they engage with me, they understand that I am only there to be a compliment, a positive compliment to, ad- to the advancement of the business that they're building. Mhm, mhm. You know, when I came out of uh, MIT uh, many, many years ago, uh, 
of course there were like it seemed these search people companies were constantly after me but I settled for one and uh I am still very good friends with that person today um because of the investment that he made in making sure that I was making the right decision for the beginning of my career. And I will always be thankful for that because he had the kind of instincts that I I did not have. But let's talk about uh, the president was in at Howard University last week, and I looked at those young people, how eager the faces looked. What can we expect uh, that the kind of hurdles that they will face in finding jobs and carving out careers and and what what is your projection about how successful they will be um in 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 starting their careers so you're right the president did deliver uh, an epic speech on May 7th Uh, at Howard University, and one of the things that I like to start conversations with is, you know, covering, and I've I've done a lot of work over the last several months as it relates to covering and how covering involves everyone in the conversation of diversity and inclusion. It's based off of the work, the 1963 book called Stigma by Irvin Goffman, and so when when we set the conversation in place and we make sure that every single individual in the room feels as if they have a vested interest in diversity and inclusion. It allows the plan to unfold, the strategy sessions to unfold a little bit differently. When you ask about what do recent graduates have to look forward to, they have to look forward to a a, a deep shift in the economy. And one of the things that works extremely well for me is that I really don't have a cut card. I don't have a whole lot of patience. I don't play, you know, a lot of games when it comes to doing the work that I do because I try to deliver at a very high degree of precision. And so when I'm with the client, the client, I am very I critical, am very critical of, of and, and, and exploratory and, 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 of, of what they are trying to do. But also when I'm on – uh, HBCU campuses and, campuses and other collegiate campuses. We try to have a very honest conversation with them as well. And what I think that they need to look forward to is that they need to be prepared for the gig, the on-demand economy that we're in. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that when I say gig or on-demand, you look at companies like Airbnb and Uber and you think about advertising platforms like Facebook. Facebook is an advertising platform. You like to categorize it as a social media platform, but Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram are advertising platforms, and they don't own any inventory. We are the people creating that inventory for them. So because these businesses are being built off of on-demand activity, ready and right now activity, that requires a very different employee. Long gone are the days of people going into huge uh, manufacturing assembly lines. Long gone are the days of companies like an IBM and a General Electric and even a Northrop Grumman, companies like that. It's going to be very, very hard-pressed to find organizations with 
30, 40, 50, 70, 100,000 people in them. Many of these graduates right now are going to be working for firms with 200 and 250 people or less. And so it demands more of them. It demands more creativity of them. And ultimately, they have to be far more productive than they ever had to be back in the day. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and, and so in the entry, one of the things most of the people in, in my audience probably have a adult children who just graduate came out of graduate school or undergraduate school and so the whole idea is to have a strategy for wherever you land how do you begin to do that how do you begin to be a brand within an organization as an individual well, I mean, there's there's a couple of things that you can do, but I, I would say probably having a four-point plan would, would be very, very helpful. Number one, I, I would break it down into the tools that I need. If we are speaking on an individual level, what are the tools that I need to be able to, to, to begin building my brand and to be able to build the cachet of, of respect with my peers to be able to build that support system with those that work with me to build the belief that my superior has in the work that I'm delivering. So there are a variety of tools that I'll need in my, you know, tool belt for lack of a better example, or my desk. There are some things that I'm going to need and, and you would be well advised to find out what those tools are in the first, I would say 30, 60, 90 days of being on the job. You would also be well advised to continue to look for new tools to add to your arsenal so that you can become effective. When you get the tools, then you need to work on the knowledge. The formula that I have always used as it relates to recruitment has been knowledge, opportunity, and financial gain. Knowledge, Mm -hmm. opportunity, and financial gain. And the reason why I do it that way, Janice, is because so many candidates will come to me and they'll email, will hop on a call, And they may start the conversation with, well, I want to make more money. Well, more money is not a good reason for you and I to be working together. This kind of goes back to the relationship that you still have with your other recruiter. I try to work them through that three-step process, and they have to understand that knowledge is the most important thing. And if you're not moving because you are seeking more knowledge, then you're not the right candidate for me. You can go work with another recruiter, but you're not going to be able to work with me because I want a deep relationship with you. And so knowledge is extremely important. If you are in a job where you are not being fed, you are not being developed, you are not being enriched, then you're probably not in the right job. If you are going for a promotion that's not going to give you additional knowledge, then it's probably not the right promotion. So I would say that Mm -hmm. tools, number one, knowledge, number two, third thing that I would focus on if I'm trying to build my brand and really show that I'm the person that's supposed to be on this team, then I'm going to look at the platform in which I deliver whatever it is that I'm doing. Am I, uh-huh. you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, attending meetings, uh, uh, networking events? Am I doing extracurricular activities? What platform am I pr- positioning myself in so that I do seem and appear to be uh, and believed to be the right member of this particular team. And then last but not least, 
the ribbon around all of that is how do you design who you are? You know, do you arrive at work ready to go each and every day? Are you a push-play type of individual, or do we have to really kind of prod you to get you started? we got to prime you for three hours out of the day, and you really don't get cranking until 12 o'clock. That's not the person that I want on my team. So how do you deliver? What's the design and how you package all of the things that you're working on. Are you the individual that we really want to see on our leadership team? Are you the individual that we really want to put forth in the community representing our organization? That all comes out in the design. I think about one of my last, uh, you know, the last couple of years that I was at MCI, people you would always ask me, well, why don't you dress down? Why don't you wear jeans when you come to work? Because I'm, I'm performing for the role that I want. And the people mm-hmm. that I, the, the position that I want to be, those individuals don't wear jeans to work. And so I'm performing in the role that I want, not in the role that I currently have. So the four mm-hmm. things that I would focus on are tools, knowledge, the platform, and the design of the individual. And I'm suggesting to all of you who are listening, you better start talking to your children because my, I'm about to shift with Torin into the idea of whether or not we're living in a climate, organizational climate, where diversity and inclusion is really a priority. Let me ask you that. Are, we uh, are you asking? Having to, you're asking I'm asking. Are you yes. asking me if it's a priority? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you have a number of organizations that have made some major announcements as it relates to, you know, diversity and inclusion. I'll tell you, know, last year in January, Intel made an announcement that they were allocating $300 million over the course of the next 10 years to focus on diversity and inclusion. Google followed that up with $50 million. Facebook, another $50 million. Apple, they invested maybe $50 million. And I could be off by a few million with one or two of those organizations. But the point being, tech companies making huge announcements in terms of allocating dollars to the, the process of trying to, to, to hire diverse talent. Just this past week, the CEO of Intel uh, released a study that he did with the Dahlberg Global Development Advisors, I believe, um, and it was a correlation between the workforce and having a diverse and racial, uh, uh, racial and ethnically diverse workforce, and the financial performance and, and the, the the benefits of having one are incredibly clear. They said that mm-hmm. the representation of Nasdaq companies, a Nasdaq listed tech company there's a three percentage point increase in revenue if they have a racially diverse organization. And so the sum total of that report was that for the NASDAQ companies, they're leaving 300 to $370 billion a year in production and revenue on the table by not okay. being diverse. So when we talk about diversity and inclusion, yes, it's an extremely important uh, conversation that is being had by all industries, not just the tech industries. But the flip side of that conversation, Janice, is that you have to be ready for the opportunity. Ready. That doesn't mean I'm going to be ready. To, it's, you have to be ready when the opportunity is presented to you. I won't mention mm-hmm. the HBCU, but I recently did 
a session at an HBCU. And before doing the session, I went online and I looked at the career fair. And you know that for most colleges, they do career fairs once in the winter and another one in the spring. And I looked at the career fair for the last, the career fairs for the last year at this particular institution. And we're talking about fast food restaurants, convenience stores, hardware companies, automobile rental companies, uh, a couple of very small boutiques in the area. That's what was there. And we're talking for graduates. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. We're not talking, you know, uh, high-impact tech companies, you know, fast-moving consumer packaged good organizations. We're not talking about startup organizations, and they are, they are very near a, uh, a vibrant startup community, none of which was wrapped at career fair. So those mm-hmm. individuals, those students graduating, in my opinion, had slim pickings. And so the question that I started with was you have to ask yourself and this school, was it worth it? Was it worth it for you to invest fifty to to $100,000 for your education and for them to present you with this right here. Was it worth yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. So are you does your company do work? I mean, would you go back to this HBCU and then say to them, you need to work on who is envisioning what your career fairs ought to look like? Because that's not the career fair that I attended at the at the Harvard School a Kennedy School uh, about two months ago. No, absolutely. You you know, you reach out, you try to reach out to the presidents and the provosts of these uh, institutions, and oftentimes they are inoculated by layers of contact, you know, secretaries and assistants and other department yeah. heads, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. The and so they are... Yeah, they're often, you know, inoculated and, and, and protected, if you will, so it's hard to get to them. And then when you do get to individuals on the campus, they, they tend to take the position or the posture of we have it covered, if you will. And so it just mm-hmm. takes a few wins, and it takes one school working with you and picking up the phone and calling the next school, if you will, uh, because yeah. we still they're, – there's still, you know, this, this – Thing around somebody's ice being a little bit colder than your ice if I don't know who you are. Or there's uh-huh, this uh-huh. thing about you not being a, a, a credible source because you don't have a glass office or a hundred people working for you. And so, you know, you still fight. And that's why when you started the conversation at the top and you said that we're doing well, well, well is to be defined. I'm still scratching and clawing and working just yeah. as hard as I was in many ways 18 years ago, but I can tell you this. I'm absolutely confident in the work that I do, and I assure you that when we do the work, we do extremely good work, and individuals mm-hmm. recognize, wow, we, you know what? We delayed progress by not having Torrin involved, and now we understand what we've been missing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in this conversation, I do want to talk to you about leadership. And to the question of if I'm spending $50,000 uh, a year on tuition and I am a parent or I am an alumnus of a university that is not delivering 
effectively to students, whether it be outreach to for a career fair or empowering students to understand what's happening in our economy and in the in the market, their marketplace is the job market. Um, then, as a stakeholder in all of that, uh, parent organizations ought to be having. I mean, I would be really pissed if that happened to me. But um, <laughs> parent organizations and alumni organizations ought to be speaking to that issue. But it, it, it comes to something very much more fundamental, Torin, that I want to talk to you about, and that is being the leaders that we are looking for in every aspect of, 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 of on these subjects. For instance, be, uh, you know, uh, there are probably a lot of people who are listening who are mid-management or who are just above mid-management and trying to figure out in their own organization, in that culture, where do I fit? And some of the same questions of, um, I've been here for 20 years, and it doesn't feel good. I need to, to to package myself, and I also need to do an analysis of the environment I'm in. So let's talk about leadership as an innate kind of thing that people who want to be successful ought to be taking on um, in the course of living their lives and in and, and, and this whole notion of, of, of working while black. One of the things that I find that people either settle or they either fight back and get fired or get ostracized and isolated or they feel like they're losing their minds on a daily basis. <laughs> I, I don't know. So how do we become leaders in, in, in the job market, in the job, uh, in, in, in the uh, culture, as, and, 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 and at the same time have some expectation about this whole notion of inclusivity in organizations? That's a lot. I know it's a lot. Yeah, it was. It, it, it it's a big <laughs> one. So, but but I want to go back to something that you said about the parents first and foremost, uh, because I don't want to run. You know, if you do have people listening that um, have young people preparing to go off to college or or um, or in their first year of college, I want to just reinforce that. You know, college is a real estate play to me. Um, I know that it's educational in nature. We're trying to get the degree, but it really is a real estate play to me. Real estate in the sense of education takes up, you know, some of the space in our brain, that real estate, that mental landscape, if you will. But more importantly, the most important building on that college campus is the career center. It's not the marketing department. It's not financial aid. It's the career center. And what I always encourage high school students and their parents to look at is what is the career center doing, how is the career center staffed, how are they resourced, all of that good stuff. One of the strongest career centers in the entire country is at Wake Forest University. They have one of the largest. They have one of the most, you know, well-defined teams. They wrap a team around the individual student. That team also supports the parents 
of that particular student. That's how mm-hmm. vested they are in making sure that when you attend that university, that you and the end, the end game is something that is materialized for them. So I just don't mm-hmm. want that point to, to be glossed over. When you talk about leadership in these organizations, I think it's really a matter of defining what leadership looks like. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, they look for a silver bullet or they want their answer to be the only or best answer. And I try not to operate that way because I feel like there's so many ways for us to to achieve success. And, And so I think that it really defines, it starts with defining what does leadership look like inside of your organization. Your company is going to be entirely different from my company and and vice versa. The size of the organization matters. The industry that you're in, it matters. The tenure that you bring to the organization matters. Your compensation level, it matters. Education, it matters. How you motivate and lead and guide people, all of that stuff matters. Are you a creative person? Do you sit in the meetings and deliver solutions that the business can explore or put into play? That matters. Or are you the individual that's simply in the meeting just taking notes and sending out tweets on social media or whatever the case may be? All of these things matter. So when I think about becoming a leader, I think about aligning myself with a strategic mentor. So when I get inside of an organization, I'm trying to find a strategic mentor, not just a mentor, but a strategic one, meaning if I'm in the accounts payable department, I'm going to find someone in human resources perhaps to be a mentor. I'm going to find someone in logistics Mm -hmm. to be a mentor. And the reason why I want a person outside of my business unit to be my mentor is because it it allows me to learn various aspects of the business, and then I become more valuable in the business. I don't need to necessarily be mentored by someone in my business unit because the way that I approach it is that if I'm in your unit, you have a responsibility to make sure that I'm producing and or equipped to produce anyway. And so I think that it's you know, indirectly, they're going to give you, I would hope, the best of what they have to give you in your unit. So I charge people to go outside of their business unit, outside of their department, and find that strategic mentor so that you can start building up your pedigree to become a high-impact leader. The second thing that I would do if I'm trying to become a leader is I'm trying to, I'm showing initiative. Far too often, individuals simply do enough to get by. That's it. You know, I have a friend right now, he calls me all the time, why are you on the computer at 4 and 5 in the morning? Why are you willing to work 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night? Mm -hmm. Or worse, he's like, Torn, I'm not giving them my cell phone number because, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, my cell phone number because I don't want them to email me on the weekends on my cell phone. I leave my computer at the office. And I don't want them to email me on my smartphone. They're not paying my smartphone bill, so I don't want to take emails on the weekend. Uh Well, guess what? Uh You know, that particular individual is not, in my opinion, not where he should be based on the amount of time that he has put in his particular industry because he's not willing to go above and beyond. Exceptional individual but not really willing to go above and beyond. And I think leaders, they tend to go above and beyond. I was doing some reading 
uh, last week on board compensation, director level compensation. And for the longest, you know, Janice, for the longest, director's compensation was not necessarily tied to performance. But in 2015, 2016, you're beginning to see this trend where the, Mm -hmm. yes, absolutely, you're beginning to see a trend where director level compensation is tied to performance. So these people, on average, 10 to 15 people on the board are flying to one, two, three meetings a year, making $200,000 a year. They are now being asked and required to contribute something to the advancement of that organization. Uh, organization. So when I think uh-huh. about leadership, that's what I think about. It's okay uh-huh. to become the president of a unit. It's okay to become a VP. But I think I'm looking long-term like, well, what would it take for me to get a board seat on a utility company? That's what uh-huh. I think leadership is. So it's really painting a vision and working extremely hard to get there. Mhm. You know, it's 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 interesting that you say that because you know, I'm I'm surrounded by people who in their corporate lives uh have worked extremely hard and extremely smart and are facing issues now um by this whole it, it, the issue of ageism and of course we all face the issue of of racism and race privilege in our workplace and one of the things and i know that you have um uh, just a short uh, a short time to be with us one of the things i wanted to talk with you about is our strategies of how you one begin to educate the people within the people with whom you work and try to upgrade their understanding as a black person in the workplace or as a um 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 a brown person in the workplace about what it is that you have to do extra um i, I you know, my daughter will say, oh, I will never do what you did as a corporate person. But she's doing exactly that, and she can't see it, but she will. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, she never puts down her phone. Her organization is working 24 hours a day, partly because they're multinational. And she never – she's always answering email in all of her waking hours and even sometimes in her sleeping hours. But how does that figure into who we are as black people in these organizations making contributions and somehow those contributions are marginalized and minimized in many ways? How do we begin to do that? So I'm going to take the marginalized and minimalized. I'm going to put that at the end. Okay. What I want to what I want to start with is number one. I do not subscribe to the notion that we have to work twice as hard. I don't uh-huh. tell my. I I don't say that to. I, I just don't say that. I don't believe that. I don't say that. Um, and so that's just that. You know, I don't. 
I make sure that I work and put forth my earnest and very best effort, and and that's just the way that we do it. The second thing that I would say that is extremely important for us is we have to understand the game that's being played, and we have to see the shifts that are happening in our economy and our workplace. And so anyone right now that's, you know, of age listening, they walk into banks, they walk into grocery stores, and both of those institutions have a whole lot of aisles and windows available, but no one work in them. Their computers and technology and self-checkout, that's working. So the people that are employed in those banks and those grocery stores are probably saying the same thing that your daughter says, that I would never work as hard as they used to work in the grocery store. But, in fact, mm-hmm. they really are. They really mm-hmm. are. And so I think that it's extremely important that we understand and recognize that the time is shifting, the economy, the workplace is shifting. And with all of that shifting, you have uh, 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 shareholders that we have to to uh, satisfy they want more for less, and so these organizations, these leaders are figuring out how to give them more, and sometimes that means cutting the workforce but not cutting productivity. So they are going to work. They have to just make sure that they are watching. One thing that I would throw out for your listeners is a book called Industries of the Future, Industries of the Future by Alec, A-L-E-C, Ross. Really good book. And it paints a picture of where we're going in terms of some of the industries that we know today and some of the industries that we don't know. Talks about robots and driverless cars and Bitcoin and some of the other things that are happening. And all of these things are important to me because I recruit in the technology space. And so I'm watching how these these um, um, equations are playing out because they impact the type of talent that I look for and ultimately the type of diverse talent that I'm able to put in. Lastly, mm-hmm. when you talk about being marginalized and minimal, listen, that happens. We know it happens. It's always happened. It's always happened. That We're never going to get rid of that. And so what I try to tell people to do is you just keep giving them something that they cannot forget. You keep hitting them upside the head with your productivity. You keep dropping, you know, results in them that they get, that they just can't ignore. You have to mm-hmm. keep doing that. It doesn't matter that it gets minimalized. Well, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. It matters that it gets minimalized, but you can't allow that to paralyze you and you not producing and you going to work and complaining. And all of the, mm-hmm. listen, if you don't like it, then you figure out how to maximize the opportunity of, A, I'm already employed, and, B, how do I leverage that to secure better employment, employment Mm -hmm. where I believe that they will recognize me. That's the number one reason why people leave organizations. It's not because of compensation. It's because of a lack of recognition. That has been a, uh, a constant statistic since I started recruiting in the late 90s. I read a, a leadership management and have read several polls over the last 18 years, and recognition, a lack of recognition, is the number one reason why people leave employment. That's not black people, not brown people, people. So 
when mm-hmm. you talk about being marginalized or minimalized, yes, it's happening. It's going to continue to happen. It's part of the process. We just need to be able to capitalize on the opportunity and use it as a stepping stone to get to the next best opportunity. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Um, one of the things that I, I, I do want to people to understand about the services that you provide in your company is that sometimes – uh, it is not necessary that, that you are trying to look for a specific kind of um, job, but you're looking for a specific kind of organization. You know, for, and I'll give myself a, for example. I am going to be retiring um, in January from my day job. Uh, and um, that's uh it's been a it's been a long haul but when i look back i've actually had four different careers mm-hmm. uh my first era era of my life i was in corporate america and then i went into consulting and nonprofit and then i went into government and it was all for very specific kinds of reasons i mean my first job i only took it because i was going to be working for the president of the company okay uh, and that was good enough for me and he was a pioneer in technology and industry and he was an um edwin land the founder of polaroid and that was important. And I didn't care what he was going to give me to do. <laughs> I was going to be able to work for this giant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to another company that I absolutely hated, and I set a very specific time frame in which I was going to go work there because they were making missiles. <laughs> but it was th- I that went had to, to be fun. <laughs> I went there because I had an opportunity to work in a very conservative organization, a very blue blood, um, and a very profit-oriented organization. Making money was the deal. Nothing else mattered. Uh-huh. And then, you know, and then I got a chance to work for, for another president and pioneer in technology, and I went there. But those were not uh, – I knew that those were and, – and then I taught uh, um, at the college level, and I hated that. Well, I don't know if it was because it was at night or or I was tired or what it was. I, I, I lasted all of 11 years and I just and then but it's the radio thing that I see as my life work. Uh-huh. And I've been doing this for 34 years. Uh-huh. So but I think your organization is the kind of organization you call someone who understands the world world of work and says, "Look, I've got to figure out what to do here." I mean, like I'm going to be calling you and saying, "Okay, in January I'm going to be done, but I can't stop. What, it is, what is it? Brand me and tell me what it is I have to do, <laughs> I can do. You know, maybe one of those board jobs. That's right, succession plan. Well, see, so you, you, need, you need to go through your own succession 
obsession, <laughs> you know, yes. replacing yourself with yourself. You know, what's next? And and I think that the fair question, you know, it's a very fair question. And, and for you, you, I think that you've probably identified it. You've, you've been doing radio for 34 years. There's uh, an enormous amount of technology out there now that allows you to do it the way that you've been doing it. You have um, an extremely deep uh, repository of interviews with some luminaries. I've looked at the, the people that you've interviewed. I've listened to several. I know some. So, I mean, there's a way for you to, to try to figure out how to take that and move that into to something new. So that succession planning that you need to go through to replace you with you, is uh, it's a real thing. But the good part is that you recognize that you need to do that now. You're not waiting until November or December. You're not even waiting until the end of the summer, you know, the summertime where so many people take off you know, and they're not really worried about the career and a job search and doing a resume and all that great stuff. So you're starting at the right time. And I would continue to continue to keep the focus on that so that it does not sneak up on your radar. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm suggesting to to my audience tonight is that you have to begin to look at you yourself as a brand, first of all. Uh, Absolutely. And in doing that, you have to develop a strategic plan. So uh, Torin Ellis is the kind of person, and I'm suggesting that he is the person that people need to be talking about. Um, You know, everybody's saying to me, well, you need to take off six months. I don't need to take off six months. By six months, this man would have left me if I didn't have anything to do. (laughs) 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 He would be gone. Just just say, oh, I can't deal with this. That sounds like Um, a little personal motivation right there. Yeah. So (laughs) I I think that – when we when you talk about you are a human capital strategist i haven't interviewed for a job in 18 years so that whole skill set that i need to be talking to other people about what i want to do and what you know what they have available and all that stuff that's got to be regeared re reconstituted uh, and it's a whole different world. I mean, I, I interview a lot of, of a lot of recent graduates of law school, a lot of recent graduates coming out of ma- uh, master's programs, and 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 I think that these colleges and universities, these law schools, are not doing a very good job of preparing pre- preparing people to talk to experienced, well experienced employers directly about what it is they want to do. You know, if if somebody in an interview I'll I'll tell you this story and I I I had an interview last, last week before last and uh the guy said to me, "Well, I just want to be a lawyer." And I said, "Well, you've never been a lawyer, so you don't know how to be a lawyer. What kind of lawyer are you going to be?" And he really couldn't answer that that question. After three yeah. years of law school. Right. So let me tell you, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and so one of the things that I've always said, first of all, you said you haven't interviewed in 
a very long time. So I, I look at an interview as a conversation, and that's the way that I try to approach it. I really share with candidates that it's it's merely another conversation. And Judith uh, Glazer, she had a quote, and I've been referring to this quote since probably 2007. And it says, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of the culture, which depends on the quality of the relationships, which depends on the quality of the conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Tonight's conversation, your your bank of conversations. One can listen to your interviews each and every interview and just take a line, pull a thread out of each and every interview and arm themselves in a much more prepared way for their very next conversation, no matter what that conversation is. And so your conversation is going to be something that I would focus on. And and an interview is really, it's just that. And so when it comes to the strategy, you know, just quickly, I always tell people you need to do a 20-20-60 strategy. 20% of your time spent on job boards, 20% of your time spent on social media. And so even for those where you mentioned ageism, we didn't talk about that, but where you mentioned ageism, people that are over, let's say, 45 or 50 looking for an opportunity, yes, you need to be on social media trying to find it. You need to understand what hashtags are and how they work. So you need to spend 20% of your time looking for that opportunity, that next conversation on social media, and then 60% of your time should be spent working through networking and referrals. So it's a 2020-60 strategy, and I think it's a very strong, solid, and diverse strategy that does one important thing, and that important thing is keep you from pulling your hair out. Because most candidates today looking for opportunities, they sit behind a keyboard, they go to a career portal or job board, and they hit upload and enter, and then they sit back and they wait, and they wait for the phone to ring, or they wait for an email message or invitation to roll in, and it doesn't happen that way. And they get frustrated. And they come to me and they'll say, Torn, you know, I've spent, you know, the last, Three weeks. I talked to somebody who said they've been looking for a job for two years. Two. I said, so has it been a consistent two years or like on and off? She said somewhere between on and off and consistent. Two years. I said, so let me ask you just one important question. Just one. Have you been implying online or have you been calling the employers before you hit send? She said, I've been applying online. I said, well, there's your problem. So we Mm -hmm. have to change the strategy. We have to not be afraid to engage and to, you know, pick up the phone and and, and reach out to the people that we want to interview with or or meet or network with. We we just got to do it a little bit differently. So 2020-60 is the strategy that I would give to everyone. Okay, okay. And to begin to think about – you know, if you're going to make a change, who you are and what kind of change you want to make. You know? Well, you um, yeah, you most definitely have to know who you are. Uh, you know, I think that's the most important question that we can answer each and every day. Who are you? You have to know exactly who you are. You have to know what strengths you bring to the equation. You have to be honest and 
be able to identify your red flags. We talk to candidates all the time, and I ask them, you know, you got to give me your red flags, and I just want you to know that I'm going to give it to the client. And the reason I'm going to give it to them is because, once again, Janice, because of something that you said earlier, clients trust me to give them high-impact talent. They trust me so much so that Mm -hmm. they feel as if I've already worked an individual through one or two interviews before my presenting them to the organization. So I want them all, I want candidate and client to have a better recruiting experience. been my tagline for years, a better recruiting experience. And so you have to know who you are, your strengths, your opportunity areas, what do you bring to the equation. It's all in how you prepare. And that's what we do when we work with our candidates, so that they are mm-hmm. extremely prepared for the opportunity. And and I want to suggest, Torrin, and um, this is the the, the last uh, area that I want to explore with you is the idea that so many of us have thought about having, you know, I have my own company, I've had my own consultancy practice, I've had uh, a, a lot of things, and people are are thinking that, well, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to have my own company. But the same principles apply. Would you say, would you agree with me? Just rephrase the question for me. I just want to make sure that I'm clear. That the same question, if you're looking for a job and how you strategize and package and brand yourself would apply when you begin to build your own company the same and more the same Uh and more absolutely because you know building an organization requires so much more of you it's going to pull you in ways that you and 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 for many people it's going to pull them in ways that they are not accustomed to being pulled in it's going to Mm -hmm. demand that they perform in areas where they may not have domain experience or they may not have deep level expertise but they're going to have to perform in that capacity until they are able to hire someone to to do that or they're in a position to be able to outsource that particular function. Running a business, building a business, it requires a number of moving parts. And so if, if if one thinks about the preparation they need for an interview, I would say, you know, put a 10x or 15 or 20x multiple on that and as it relates to building a business. Um, and, and we're talking about building a business, not, you know, being an entrepreneur, you know, a, a solo entrepreneur. That's entirely different. When you're building a business and payroll and all of those things, it requires so much more of you. So absolutely, you cannot take any shortcuts in this equation. And I think that that really should be the theme. We cannot afford to take any shortcuts. I'm not going to tell you that you have to work twice as hard but I am going to tell you that you can't really afford to take any shortcuts, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in building your business, whether it be in your representation in the community. We just can't afford to take any shortcuts. Absolutely. Torin Ellis, it's been a pleasure to to have this conversation with you. Uh, I think that we don't give serious consideration to how we manage and how we are present in our employment lives. Um, And that 
if we if the, the kind of time that people spend on on jobs is more time than they spend with their families more time than they spend on themselves and there has to be some self-care embedded in how we work so i look forward to having you again absolutely and, and, and i will by close the way, by yes I, yes before you close I want to tell you, I I saw that you're from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Yes, I am. And I'm a native of West Palm Beach. I so love it. So we got it, it going it. on, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, that my very it. good friend, my very good friend Terry Williams of the Terry Williams Agency, also handles your brand. She does. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. We started working together. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Terry and I have been friends since our college days. Oh, wow. She's been on this program many times. Yeah, Terry is phenomenal. You know, we uh, we started with one another back in October of 2015, and I reached out to her after winning – top recruiter season number four uh, and I felt like Mm -hmm. it was time for me to do something different as it related to the brand and so I reached out to Terry we had a really good conversation and you know I just explained to her and her team I said you know it's extremely important that people understand the power of diversity and inclusion but that they understand it through the lens through the voice of a recruiter I'm not a consultant Mm -hmm. I'm not a trainer I don't want to be a consultant. I don't want to be a trainer. I want to help companies with their human capital strategy, their plan. So the voice of a recruiter talking about diversity and inclusion is something that has been absent from uh, the conversation. The other thing that I told Terry is that uh, black media has been complicit. There is absolutely no reason, zero reason, why Silicon Valley was able to I say G off, Janice. That means how they mm-hmm. were able to get off and get out the gate for the last 15, 20 years, and this whole diversity thing had been ignored. Like, where mm-hmm. were you? You understand? Mm-hmm. So now, all mm-hmm. of a sudden, you want, to, you want, you want to, to, to run to the mic with a pitchfork, and you're mad about it, but you allowed it to happen. You watched it. You watched it. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. I told Terry is I said, you know, we just have to make sure that we let them understand that we're coming because we want to help you with a solution. And so I thought it was best for me to align with a PR firm that could help me get the word out. Wonderful. So I just I, I just think I, I, I look at all of the, the the way in which you talk about your product delivery is is just astounding and I'm suggesting to all of you who are listening you can go to Torin Ellis T O R I N E L L I S dot com and learn more about this fabulous brother and his brand cuz you're branding all over the place it's you're you're in a in a highly competitive industry and working yeah. it Absolutely. So thank you so very much. You wanted to do a close, and I interrupted you because I always interrupt people. Oh, so first and foremost, I'll just simply say thank you 
and I will close the way that I open almost all of my presentations. Bad will be the day for any man when he becomes absolutely contented with the thoughts that he is thinking, with the deeds that he is doing, with the life that he is living when forever beating at the doors of his soul is some great desire to do something more, to be more, to give more, to live more, because after all, you are a child of the most high God. And I'm not sure who the author is, but it's something that I learned when I started my business, and I've said it over and over and over again. That's how I massage my soul. That's how I continue to push and fight when I feel like I am pushing that snowball up a hill, when the doors are being slammed, when the emails are not being returned, when the phones ring and they ring and they ring. That's what I do. I keep telling myself that I have to do more. I have to change my formula. I have to shift a little bit, put another piece in play. I'm going to do something, but what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to quit. Janice. Wow. And I don't want any back. of your listeners to quit. Well, thank you so very much. And for you out there, TorinEllis.com does have a podcast where Torin brings free genius to America, and you should check it out. It what's the, what's the URL, Torin, for for your podcast? No, yeah, I don't do a podcast. I'm on Sirius XM channel 126 with the fabulous Karen Hunter show each and every Monday in the four o'clock hour. Sirius XM channel 126 with Karen Hunter uh, each and every Monday in the four o'clock hour. I've got to get Karen Hunter over here. Um, I haven't talked to her in years, uh, but um, I, I'm I'm a frequent listener to her show, um, and uh, I've got to get her over here. But I thought I saw something on Blog Talk Radio that you were doing with the podcast. Yeah, that was a couple of years ago, and so people will see it on my current site. My new site is going up in you know, seven or ten days, and then they won't see that anymore. So I don't okay. do blog talk now. I'm, I'm only on Sirius XM. Okay. So that's Channel 126, the Karen Hunter Show, and you're there on Mondays. And one of our listeners tonight is saying that he listens to you on Mondays on the Karen Hunter Show. Tell the listener I said what's happening, and thanks for listening here as well. Okay. Torn, you're going to have to come back, and thank you so very much. And Thank you. Um, you have a good weekend. Thank you. You do exactly the same, Ms. Graham. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, I got to be Ms. Graham. And thank you all for being with us here tonight. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we have a very special guest for you uh, that will be joining us, Alpha of the Alpha Show, and we're going to be talking about Paul Ryan's GOP, what is happening, Alpha is going to bring us all to it. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. 
And now back to Jen. How do you wake up the entire African American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're listening to Truth Work. The I Declare Show. Real. Real. Raw. Raw. Right now. Tuesdays. 9 p.m. The I Declare Show. With India Declare. She brings it real, raw, and right now. The home of real, raw, right now, talk media. And indeed, as we always say, I declare it. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. I declare, Tuesdays, 9 p.m., Blog Talk Radio, the I Declare Show. No dickety, no doubt. And we thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground on this Saturday, May 14th. At the top of the hour, we're going to be talking with Alpha of the Alpha Show, giving us a little preview of what's going on. But for those of you who did not uh, get a chance to hear comments made, uh, the the commencement speech by President Barack Obama Uh, at Howard University last week. Uh, We're going to present that, but we want to thank Taryn Ellis. I mean, this brother is doing it, and we are always concerned about opportunities for ourselves, but especially opportunities. I've been doing a lot of thinking about graduates. Last night we got caught in the traffic, you know, in Boston, There are 56 colleges and universities within the city of Boston. And that's not counting uh, all of the schools at uh, Harvard um, and Harvard College. And uh, then there's the traffic from the parents who came to see their kids outside of the city, like at Brandeis University. I mean, hundreds of people last weekend and this weekend and next weekend. They were supposed to have some kind of agreement about the scheduling of these graduations, but it literally took us an hour last night to get from Boston to Cambridge because uh, we ran into Boston University, then there was University of Massachusetts, Boston, and then I think that uh, the Harvard dental school and the medical school had their graduation on yesterday. It was just a mess in this city. 
But um, I have been thinking a lot about these young people and how they get into the job market and the lack of information that many of parents and grandparents have um, limited information about what that is all about. It is just nerve-wracking, I would think, for family to have spent uh, upwards of a hundred and eighty thousand um, dollars, and to watch some of these young people not be able to figure out how to get a job. Um, one of the advantages of not getting a job is you don't have to start paying paying your 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 school loans back. But it's it's just. I think it's something that we ought to be thinking about in our community, uh, that we have to become more literate uh, about about the kind of conversations, the kind of support, and the kind of resources that we can identify for these students. Um, for those of you who are listening and you'd like to join our chatters in the chat room, uh, in, India Declare, who uh, is the host of the uh, I Declare show on Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. She's in our chat room. Thank you, India, for being here. And then there's Rashid. Hey, Rashid, can you see me? Uh, I'm waving. Uh, and YJ. <laughs> YJ is a big listener, uh, a big serious radio listener, as uh, I am. Um, and sometimes I don't get to the show. And then we have Michelle Odom, who is uh, with us with her Black Feminist Reading Group. Uh, you can find her on Facebook. And thanks to all of the guests, and we've got a board full of people. But one of the things that I wanted to do tonight was to be able to 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 get an idea that there are professional people who can assist us ensuring that our children get to some of these opportunities, opportunities that by reading uh, Facebook you would never know. Uh, also this week I wanted to talk about Mark Lane. Mark Lane, uh, one of the voices of uh, the 60s, died at age 89. He was a defense lawyer, social activist, and author who concluded, uh, for those of you who might not have remembered, a blockbuster book in the mid-1960s that Lee Harvey Oswald could not have acted alone in killing President John F. Kennedy. But one of the reasons that Mark uh, Lane caught my attention in the 60s was because he was the running mate of Dick Gregory when Dick Gregory ran for president. Um, He uh, was a friend of Jane Fonda and appeared on the Dick Cavett show on ABC with her. And he joined Dick Gregory and other civil rights leaders in investigating Dr. King's assassination in 1968. 
he and Dick Gregory published their findings as co-authors of the book Murder in Memphis. It was first released uh, under the name of, wait a minute, let me try to think, uh, Code Name Zero. That was the name of the book. That's the name of the book. And then they renamed it Murder in Memphis. Um, He also worked to draft the legislation in 1976 that established the House Select Committee on assassinations to investigate the murders of John F. Kennedy and Dr. King. And um, Mark Lane represented King's assassin, James Earl Ray, during that period, and in testimony before the committee unsuccessfully sought his release. Another civil rights era uh, contemporary activist we lost this week, Michael Ratner. He was an attorney. He was president of Emeritus of the Center for Constitutional Rights, which is a nonprofit human rights litigation organization based in New York. Uh, he died on Wednesday in New York City. I knew Michael Radner when he was a student at Brandeis University. And he has made us all proud. Uh, he died at the age of 72, two right back to back. So um, one of the things that has concerned me is that we want to deal with in the second hour is the notion of what's going on on the political landscape. Do you not find all of this just insane, just absolutely insane? Uh, On Thursday, the presumptive nominee of the Republican National Committee, Donald Trump, met with the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Now, just keep this in mind. Paul Ryan has been untouched by most of anything outside of the black black activist community where we know what his deal is. And Paul Ryan probably has his eyes on the White House in eight years because he's pretty young. I mean, he's got a big, he's got a long time to have a political uh, career. The other is that he has been placed in an untenable situation, and he has been the good boy of the Republican National Committee. And up until Thursday, he was saying, as the Speaker of the House, which is the leader of the GOP, he was saying that he doesn't know what he's going to do about Donald Trump. Excuse me, sir, you don't know what you're going to do about Donald Trump and he's the presumptive nominee? Essentially, and and I'm going to talk with Alpha about this, essentially 
Donald, the GOP, the Republican National Committee, is owned by Donald Trump at this point. Now, there's some background that I've been thinking about, and the background that I've been thinking about is that up until now, Paul Ryan has been able to maintain good relations in his district, but he's running for, he, he's going to be up for vote for election, re-election in November. Donald Trump can do a lot of damage to this man. And why he's playing this game is beyond me. And our number is 347-838-9852 if you have an idea of what it is all about. But we're going to ask Alpha. And before we do this, I do want to share with you, as I promised that I would do, comments that President Barack Obama made because I want to ask Alpha some questions about it, um, at the Howard University commencement last weekend. Well, nearly eight years after the U.S. made history by electing Barack Obama as the nation's first African-American president, he stressed to new graduates at Howard University that more work needs to be done to improve race relations in the U.S. DeMarco Morgan has more. As his presidency nears its end, Barack Obama made himself right at home at Howard University. Telling the more than 2,000 graduates, times have changed. Let me say something that may be controversial, and that is this. America is a better place today than it was when I graduated from college. I graduated in 1983. He also dug deep into race relations. The overall unemployment rate is 5%, but the black unemployment rate is almost 9 But we've still got a gender gap when a black woman working full-time still earns just 66% of what a white man gets paid. We've got a justice gap. Black men are about six times likelier to be in prison right now than white men. The first African-American president has been forced to walk a fine line on race. Today, he told the graduates to embrace their roots. Be confident in your heritage. Be confident in your blackness. The most poignant moment came when the president singled out student Sierra Jefferson for her against a long odds journey to graduation day. Sierra grew up in Detroit and was raised by a poor single mom who worked seven days a week in an auto plant. And for a time, her family found themselves without a place to call home. And today, like many of you, Sierra's the first in her family to graduate from college. And people like Sierra are why I remain optimistic about America. Whether his message was about race or the economy, President Obama offered himself up to the class of 2016 as an example of how bright their future can be. And when your journey seems too hard, and when you run into a chorus of cynics who tell you that you're being foolish to keep believing. You might say to yourself a little phrase that I found handy these last eight years. Yes, we can. DeMarco Morgan, CBS News, New York. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, Janice Graham. Uh, Alpha, <laughs> did I just have a moment or what? Yes, you did, Janice. Thank you for joining us tonight, brother. I really miss you on Friday nights because you kind of like 
you're able to give me kind of like a brain a brain adjustment. Um, let, let's talk about the president's um, comments at Howard University. It was it was a commencement speech um, where essentially he's going back to yes I can yes we can on his way out. On his way out, and that's that's what's so significant here, on his way out. Um, The phrase that um, he don't have too many more Fs to give, uh, (laughs) that's what you you hearken back to, because at this point, he can't be hurt politically from the uh, propaganda machine. He has diddled, dithered, whatever you want to call it, for seven years on just African-American issues and the African-American people. You have a lot of people who say he's the president of all America, as if every president has been the president of all America. And we know that's not true. We always fall short when we pop up someone who is willing to start as if everything was even and everything was balanced. And what he is doing is trying to Reposition himself He's doing nothing less than what Donald Trump Is trying to do And what Mitt Romney tried to do He's trying to move back to the center And kind of step One foot over to the left And what he has failed to do Is to Use his position As president To Greatly improve the lives Of the African American community Yes He's done A little here And a little there That Does not go uh, Mentioned Somehow it's not People do not see that Or hear about it And he doesn't brag about it And he's done that Throughout his presidency And so that nobody knows about it. But now in his later years, he's trying to change that and somehow bring that to a point where he can speak to some of the things, some of the things that he needed to do when he walked in that office. When he walked into that office, he knew. He knew that the racist fringe of the opposite party and of his party was going to be against him and do everything they could to stutter and and, and and create havoc and grind to a halt the government that he should be in charge of. They grinded this government to a halt and presented it as a do-nothing Congress, as a do-nothing they increased hatred of the government by the bigots and the racists that 
are so prevalent in our society. And when they've done this, they've done this in, in, in complicit with the Democratic Party, the majority of the Democratic Party, the Wall Street Democrats, the Blue Dogs, the Dinos, and the Clintons. Now, you can say what you want to say about a Bernie Sanders, but Bernie Sanders has run a race, a primary race with a, against the stacked debt and the DNC and the Debbie Washington Schultz. And people don't understand who she was before she became uh, the DNC chair and even while she was a congresswoman. She was a Clintonite. She was right in the smack dab in their camp. So the thumb has been on the scale for Clinton, and Bernie Sanders has risen above that. The people who support Bernie Sanders must understand the Green Party is going nowhere. And the question comes up, well, we have to start somewhere, so where do we start? If you want to start by making sure that Donald Trump is the president and he repeals Obamacare and he gets us into more wars and he deregulates as much as he possibly can and he, he literally goes about dismantling government as we see it and know it and taking all of the gloves and all the policemen off the street of Wall Street which there's very little of, as right now, the Republicans have done a great job, a great job of pushing us in the private industry. You were talking about the parents of students who should be pretty old about spending 100000 50000 for a child's education. And we can't find $8.5 trillion that the Pentagon can't account for. It's time to cut their budget. When they talk about waste and fraud, they don't talk about the 27 cargo planes that are sitting on the ground and uh, at an airport in Arizona that have never flown, that are worth more than $1.4 billion. The money that the government has wasted and just since the private industry, the private industry, the Halliburton that made $39 billion off the illegal wars of Iraq and Afghanistan. But it's the teachers, the public unions, the service industry jobs that are only available now. The one thing Donald Trump has that I believe in is redoing trade deals. And he can't and he's not gonna redo the trade deal. He's not gonna do it. But he can tell them he's going to do it. And the one thing that Donald Trump brings to these these uh bigots, these white hopefuls, is that somehow he's gonna bring jobs back. They're not angry that the Republicans filibustered the bills from Nancy Pelosi and this uh, administration to give tax breaks to begin to try to bring jobs back. 
They're not angry about at Republicans because nobody spoke up and said that it's the Republicans. It's the Republicans that are blocking everything. It's the Republicans that have grinded this entire situation to a halt. Donald Trump said in an interview in People's Magazine in 1998, if I were to run, I'd run as a Republican. They're the dumbest group of voters in the country. They left anything Fox News says. I could lie, and they still eat it up. I bet my numbers would be terrific. Now, how many not media outlets? Because the media outlets aren't going to say it, but how many Democrats will say that? Will quote him for base? Uh, they're going to put on the uh, misogynistic tones of what he says about women and what he says about Hispanics and the ban on Muslims. He just did a complete turn, and they said that the uh, the comments about Mexicans being drug dealers and rapists and murderers and banning the Muslims Oh, that's all in the past. This is what they're saying now. The Trump campaign is saying that's in the past, which is like saying, let's unring this bell. Let's give him a card blanche. Let's moonwalk backwards out of that. And let's try to present ourselves as presidential and neutral and loving all races. And that's not the case, and there is no voice except for Bernie Sanders, who is trying to pull the Democratic Party back to the left because they have gone so far right that it's easy to make a left turn now. It's real easy to make a left turn because they are Bill Clinton and the Clinton era the groups like Third Way, No Labels, all of those groups are Pete Peterson groups that have brought them and that put Bill Clinton in the White House, financed him, and they financed uh, major portions of the Clinton Global Initiative. And if you don't know who Pete Peterson is, Google him. He is one of the most vile libertarians. And a John Birch Society disciple, and Anne Rand. All of the things that Paul Ryan is. So Paul Ryan meets with Donald Trump. Paul Ryan is believing that he's got to somehow walk this fine line and not wholeheartedly uh, endorsing Donald Trump. But he has no choice. But what we have a duty to do is to expose him and everybody else who backs Donald Trump as a as a bigot, as an intolerable, narcissistic blowhard that they are. And that's not what's happening. The Democrats are still silent. The Progressive Caucus 
is still silent. The black caucus is still silent on who this man is. And it sure happened with uh, Occupy Wall Street. When they were running around, marching in the streets, talking about, we don't have any leaders, there's nobody who represents us. And instead of them being the key party of the left and dragging the Democrats back over to a progressive agenda. What we have and what we are witnessing is possibly the total breakdown. Well, well let me let me interrupt you because I, I do think there's a breakdown in in in, in th- these races, um, and we've got to be concerned about what is going to happen at these conventions. I could care less what's going to happen at the Republican uh, convention, but people are interested to understand what what is your understanding, Alpha, of a contested convention? How does that work? Well, that has a great deal to do with just a number of uh, pledge, pledge delegates, not the super delegates, the pledge delegates. If you have a, a, enough pledge delegates, meaning if you've got enough votes, you could possibly not go along to get along, and there's what they would call a floor fight. And that floor fight would be that there are so many people who will not uh, side to re-elect you, be on your side, vote to re- to put you up as the nominee, that they'll have to go to a second and then a third vote. So this is the opportunity right now that Bernie Sanders has is the same opportunity that Occupy Wall Street has that they didn't take, that he doesn't appear to understand how to take. Drag them to the left. There is no starting a third party. There is no, no, we can, we can hold out our votes and protest against Hillary Clinton and let Donald Trump be the president. How is that for, I mean, is that letting Donald Trump be the president because so many people who know the story of the Clintons are so against the Clintons that we are going to stay home and let Donald Trump be the president. He didn't mess up the, the uh, USFL enough for you. He didn't mess up the uh, the Trump University for you. He is not a good businessman, and the country shouldn't be run like a business. Think about the Supreme Court nominees that he would put up. I am simply saying that, no, I would prefer Bernie Sanders to be the nominee of the Democratic Party and not Hillary Clinton. But if the choice is Clinton and Donald Trump, do you stay home? Or do you step up and say, we will pull her to the left and hold her feet to the fire? See, well, to, to, what extent, to what extent is there organization, Alpha, going on around the idea of what the deal is going to be if Bernie brings if 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 Bernie br- brings his people to the I mean 
if if Bernie brings his people to the Clinton camp. I mean, I haven't seen anyone talking about what is going what the Bernie people, the Bernites, and I haven't talked to Nina Nina Turner in a couple of weeks, but what are they going to require of Hillary? They're going to require that Hillary Clinton stop with the with the uh I would say concession to what the Republicans want to do when it comes to dismantling uh, the what they call entitlement. You know, yeah, but 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 Alpha, here's the problem I have. I know what Bernie Sanders's platform is. I know what Donald Trump's platform pretty much is, even if it doesn't make any sense. I do not know what Hillary Clinton's platform is. And that's problematic. Yes, that's problematic. I agree with you that that's problematic. But like you said, you don't you you know what Donald Trump's platform is and you don't you you don't like that. You know what Bernie Sanders' platform is and you you kinda agree with that but they have raised the question, the Clinton camp has raised the question to Bernie Sanders, and instead of Bernie Sanders being able to step out and answer what his platform or how he's going to do it. See, they want to pin Bernie Sanders down as to how is he going to do it, how is he going to pay for it, and nobody pins Donald Trump or Clinton down. All Hillary Clinton says is, She's work, going to work with you. Did you think she's going to work with the other side? Did you think that the other side is going to work with her without extracting their pound of flesh? And their pound of flesh is on poor people, on the poor. There are so there are so many uh, resources as far as how the government uses our tax dollars that we should understand and that should be spoken about publicly where this money is available, where this money is. I mean, we, we give uh, big banks a subsidy of $780 billion a year. Big banks. We give them $780 billion a year. Why? And it, it, the, the, the laundry list of aid is huge, and it goes on and on and on and on. We give so much money to rich corporations and rich to people who don't need it. We give obscene tax bonuses, tax breaks. CEOs, and the, I mean the bonuses are written off as, as tax write-offs. We're giving but you know, so I, much I just, money. I, I want to underscore. I'm glad you said that because a lot of people walk around thinking that a tax break to a corporation doesn't cost the United States Treasury anything. It does so indeed. So why do they think that? They think that because. It has not been drilled in their dear little 
both are repeated ad nauseum. The truth is spoken in a soft, quiet tone. And therefore, it is not grabbed by the everyday mom and pop. You know, they don't understand. Mm-hmm. I, I and know. They don't that, understand uh, that because it's not a re- it's, it's not repeated ad nauseum. It has to be repetition. Tax break we spent seven billion dollars on. Luxury uh, tax cuts for them using their jets. We spend over three hundred million a year. This is a year. Big oil subsidies, thirty-seven point five billion a year. Pharmaceutical subsidies, two hundred and seventy billion dollars a year. This money is money that can be spent to what? Improve our infrastructure and give jobs. How about this money can be used for, say, free college? How about the $711 billion a year? The pharmaceutical companies, the net profits of the top pharmaceutical companies is $711 billion a year, and they still take the piddly little billions that they get from the government that is subsidized. Capital tax break, $51 billion a year. Now, I'm no, I'm no uh, rocket scientist. The corporate subsidies from state and local government is at $80 billion a year. What in the hell are we doing? And why so, is it that over fifty percent of our of the government's budget goes to the defense industry, and the military industrial complex? When they yeah, can't they can't find eight point five trillion dollars since nineteen ninety eight. So when people ask Bernie Sanders, how is he going to pay for it? And instead of him responding, the same way I just responded, and the list, the laundry list of wasted government money. We're not going to give Halliburton $39 billion to privatize wars that soldiers, things that soldiers used to do. Well, here's here's the deal on the other uh, on the other side of all of this is something that I haven't been able to to figure out why, as a community, that black people, black voters in this country. I mean, here here's the scary part, Alpha. The scary part is this, that, that the so-called black middle class is hailing Hillary Clinton and supporting her. They don't don't know any better. They don't know any better. All they know is Bill Clinton was their guy. He's a Democrat. You can't say, you can't friggin' say on one, out of one side of your mouth, black lives matter, and then say on the other side of your mouth. How, how do you, 
How do you twist your mouth to say Hillary Clinton on the other side? Let me put it like this. You know I have always said, where you going? Where are you going? And this isn't, and this isn't meant to say you've got no choice. This is how it's been set up. This is how it's been set up since the inception. When Pete Peterson went to Bill Clinton, he asked Bill Clinton to literally infiltrate the Democratic Party and pull it over to the right. Well, see, I think I think some of that is being employed. There were there were a group of political scientists and uh, politicians that European politicians that were in the United States this week having a conference, and one of the things that they talked about is the whole notion of how some of the things that have happened in in the UK, in Ireland. Uh, in Australia and other places, and in, in France, some of the propaganda campaigns, some of the other kinds of things, German propaganda campaigns, and one of the reasons that the German people went so silent and the um, Jewish Holocaust could take place is being employed, one, by Trump, and the other by Hillary Clinton. I believe that there is an infiltration of Hillary people, Clinton people, who are, make up this whole nasty, ugly, uh, I won't, Hillary, uh, Bernie, or bust campaign. Now, I yes. believe that. Yes. Okay. And it's called the third way and no labels. They are the people who say, we're not Democrat or Republican. We're right in the middle. But then you see the parade and who these people are. And when they say they're not Democrat or Republican, the majority of them sit on Republican think tanks and, and the boards of Republican think tanks. Is, it, it's, it's one big cluster. You know what I mean. Yeah. And hey, Alpha, I want to, I, I want to, um, I've only got a few minutes and I want to um, thank you for trying to focus on what it means of all this stuff is happening. I am really trying to stay out of the fray of this because I don't think any good is going to come of it. I think if, I mean, my dream team, my dream team would be Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. And Elizabeth Warren. And, just, well, me, and, and like so that the the traction and the dynamics of all of that would come into play. But I don't want to lose Elizabeth Warren as my senator either because exactly. we got a sorry Senate going on and, right now. Right, but right. What, what I, I want to do is to bring you on for – for to to make some political commentary every week going into the summer uh about what's what's going on here and 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 to really focus on how we can you know we need to revolutionize the shit out of this country cuz this this is just really scary and i want to ask my audience uh, tonight to ask yourself, look in the mirror when you are brushing your teeth tonight and say, who am I? 
who am I? How do we always come to this place where we are choosing the lesser of the evil? Shame on us. All these hotep stepping left black radical I mean just we are in a place that is so scary. Even I mean this is you all realize that we live in a multidimensional life in this country and I'm talking about on this dimension in this dimension. And there is no Jon Snow that is going to become the undead, and we don't have any unsullied. We don't have a Daenerys with some dragons, and we don't have a Boreen with her Valyrian steel. So we have got to we have got to figure out exactly who we are and what we are going to do with the clusterfuck that Alpha just presented. Alpha, thank you so much, brother. We you got you got to get it together. I mean, you know, throw some goof of dust or something on your head. Can you can you do that? <laughs> well, I, I, I really put it like this. I wish I say I could uh, find the, the I could find the the way with all to mend my ailment here because uh, yep. I've been able to uh, breathe uh, a lot better. I've been able to breathe a lot better uh, in the last few days. That's but great. It gets it, it just kind of hairy uh, as I go along. You know, Jack, yeah. the lesser of two evils is lesser evil. But I know. If you can extend that 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 fuse a little further out until we can turn this back to more of a progressive agenda, see, because they've had such a we need a radical part. agenda at this point. Forget the progressive part. We need a radical. No, Gotta go, Alpha. I, I hear right. you. Uh, Next week, we can argue this some more. Thank you all for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Going out tonight, I'm offering a a presentation, a discussion between Chris Hedges, who is my political mentor, and Dr. Cornell West. Have a good weekend. Enjoy the new weather. And next week, we'll be back here with uh, Pascal Robert. We're going to be talking with Alpho on whatever happens this week. Thanks a lot for being with us, and be well. Had me read Hofstetter's great oh, essay yeah, on, yeah, on, yeah. on vigilante violence, yeah, which absolutely. I used in my book, it's The last book Ways of Rebellion. But King, you write in uh, Black Prophetic Fire, uh, you know, in many ways understood that we needed a revolution, but feared deeply that we were only capable of a counter-revolution. So that's, that's and that is a reality of America. That's, that's, that's very real. That's very real. Yeah, that's always a skeleton hang- hanging in one's closet as a um, progressive or revolutionary. But you just don't know. History is so unpredictable. No one has a control over it. It looks that way. The evidence tilts in that direction. But you just don't know. 
It could be the case, for example, that when it comes to the greedy, the greedy, uh, greediness of the big banks, that lo and behold, people who view themselves as conservatives but are deeply victimized, who have an empathy or moral sensitivity, may even come to your side in ways that you hadn't predicted. You just don't know. You fight anyway. But most importantly, it's the issue of integrity, honesty, and decency. Everybody's going to die fairly soon anyway. So the question is, do you want to live a life of integrity, honesty, and decency, tell the truth, and fight for justice? Uh, and wherever the consequences flow, let it flow. Martin was like that. I mean, one of the differences between Brother Martin and myself is that he's a pacifist. See, I'm not a pacifist. Right. You see, I, uh, I believe nonviolence ought to be pursued uh, given all of the options, but sometimes you have no alternative but self-defense. No alternative but self-defense. Well, that's what Malcolm, I mean, I can't remember whether it was James Cone or may have been you or somebody wrote that Malcolm didn't have the luxury to be nonviolent. Well, that's, that's, that's Brother Jim Cone's profound insight, absolutely. And, you know, there's a sense in which uh, even Martin, if you pushed him, would mess with precious kids and Coretta. Yeah, well, he, 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 he in the beginning, he kept, the, he, had a, he, had he kept the, the pistol in the house. Yes, it, it, when it they was Coretta who pushed him in, in the name of Gandhi, absolutely. But, I mean, the reason why you say that is because you want to make sure that the world knows that even as one attempts to be a love warrior like Martin or like Ella Baker, I had to be Wells, that you are a fighter, you're a warrior, of course you believe in reaching out and keeping track of the humanity of others. I even believe in forgiveness as a Christian, mm. but I don't believe in premature forgiveness. I want to ask you a question about forgiveness. Yeah, and it yeah. comes from an essay by James Baldwin. The, I, great, I, the great James Baldwin. You cannot understand America if you do not read James Baldwin. That's the and, truth. And uh, for me yeah, as, as a writer... That's it, why we've got to defend James Baldwin yes, these days. There's some it. reductionism going on, but we won't get into that right now. Right. Well, yes, this was... I think the great writer Tony Morrison linking Mr. Coates. And, and Tony Morrison is one of the greatest of the greats, but I just disagree with my dear sister. And Coates has a very important voice, that, but at the same time, he's got to be connected to fight back hope. He's got to be connected to the social movements. He's got to be connected to the insurgency that's taking place among the young folk. He can't just be spectatorial, even given right. certain truths that he puts forward. Ball was always tied right. to fight back. And Baldwin has... We rush into battle. We're soldiers. We get hurt in the fight. We suck it up and we hold it down and we don't question. Well, I dare not. So I'm not asking you for the truth. I know the truth. So what I'm asking you is, what is your end game? You've been listening to Our Common Ground. Thank you for tuning in tonight. I'm Janice Graham. If it's Saturday at 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you. Next Saturday, join us with Wendell Potter. We'll be talking with Wendell as he returns about his new book and about the Affordable Health Care Act. Do us a favor and yourself as well. Tell your friends about this broadcast and join us on TruthWorks Network Wednesdays and Fridays with Soul of Fire and the Alpha Show. You can find Our Common Ground on Facebook, on Tumblr, on Pinterest, and Twitter at Janice OCG. Thanks again, and don't forget, I'll be listening for you. A man! We 
are six years to get back. Six things. We are six years because we have children, because we have future, and because we owe it to our ancestors. We stand, we tell the truth, we deal with our truth face on. We, the children of Shaka Zulu, we are gladiators. I'm mad. 